Amen. Take your seats. So we're looking uh, into part of the Bible, part of the Old Testament this morning, uh, in the book of Numbers, uh, Numbers chapter 14, uh, and that is on page uh, 150, if you want to follow uh, where we're going uh, in the Bibles nearby. We'll read it in a moment. Yeah, as Peter said, uh, we started last week this kind of journey that we're on um, with the Israelites you know, the Israelites, the, the, uh, God's people who'd been rescued out of Egypt and they'd got, kind of gone into the desert and they were on their way to the land that God had promised them. And uh, we discovered that how quite early on, in fact, in their journey, um, probably just a matter of a few months, really, they had this opportunity to go right on in and to follow God into the land that he promised them, otherwise known as the promised land. It's always referred to uh, because it was what God had promised. Uh, and last week we saw how they had this amazing opportunity for 12 of their leaders to go and see for themselves just how great it was and what an amazing thing God was promising them so that they could all then, all together, the whole community, about a million of them, could go right there uh, into uh, uh, the land that God had promised and take possession of it. That was uh, where we were. It was a really potentially great, exciting time. And they were to come back and tell the rest of the community how marvelous it was and, and how good God was in providing what they wanted and, and to get them ready for, for the next stage of the journey. But most of those leaders that went missed it completely, as we saw. Uh, and they went there and they saw all the good stuff, but they saw some challenges and they, they made much of that. They uh, almost wrote God and his promises and all they known of him so far completely out of the script. It was as if, you know, nothing of this had happened. And we saw that they, they started to say, well, if we do that, they're going to kill us. It's going to be awful. This land, it, yeah, it's got milk and honey. It's got everything we need, but it's got all these tough people. And what are we going to do? And oh, no, we're going to die in the desert. And our children are going to be captured. And, and this is awful. Let's go back to Egypt, they said. Do you remember that? If you weren't here, you can get a CD uh, and pick up on the story. And this kind of back to Egypt movement hits a crisis kind of level. Because the whole community spent a whole night wailing and crying and saying, Oh no, what are we going to do? Let's get new leaders. And Joshua and Caleb, the two leaders who, who did not go that way, but who did see God's promise, stand up and intervene. And they urged the others to come back from the brink. Don't rebel against God, they say. Don't give in to your fear. Trust him. Because he's with us. That's where we got to. We're going to pick up the story from that point. What did they do? Did they take any notice of them? We didn't have seven drum beats like the end of EastEnders last week. But, you know, we got to the point. What was going to happen next? And we thought, actually, that for us in our lives as believers and as maybe seekers too, we often or sometimes face that same choice. Are we going to follow our fears or are we going to trust in God and his promises and his provision? So let's see what happened next then. What happened next? They've just heard this appeal from Joshua and Caleb. Are they going to listen to them or not? Verse 10. But the whole assembly, the whole community, talked about stoning them. Not good. 
Then the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the Israelites. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will these people treat me with contempt? How long will they refuse to believe in me? In spite of all the miraculous signs I've performed among them. I will strike them down with a plague and destroy them. But I will make you, that's Moses, you into a nation greater and stronger than they. And Moses said to the Lord, Well, then the Egyptians will hear about it. By your power you brought these people up from among them. And they will tell the inhabitants of this land about it. They have already heard of you, O Lord, that you, O Lord, are are with these people. And that you, O Lord, have been seen face to face. That your cloud stays over them. And that you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. If you put these people to death all at one time, the nations who have heard this report about you will say, The Lord was not able to bring these people into the land. He promised them on oath. So he slaughtered them in the desert. Now may the Lord's strength be displayed just as you have declared. The Lord is slow to anger, abounding in love and forgiving sin and rebellion. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. In accordance with your great love, forgive the sin of these people, just as you've pardoned them from the time they left Egypt until now. Whew. It's a powerful count, isn't it? This is a very key point in their journey. They're just a few months out of Egypt, or at least not, not that long. All that they'd been through, all that they'd seen of God's power, all the miracles of provision, of rescue, they've chosen to ignore that, to rebel, and they want to go back. And, you know, this is why they were 40 years in the journey. It was because of this, this incident. The plan was that they would go straight on into Israel, but they didn't. Forty years of wandering flowed out of this as a consequence. It's the last chance for a whole community, or rather for a whole generation. Let's think about it. First of all, let's think about the crisis. The crisis, okay? There is one here, isn't there? See, they don't listen to Joshua and Caleb, do they? In fact, they decide to stone them. Now, that's not, uh, there's a kind of meaning to that. That doesn't mean that they were a mob out of control. They just thought, oh, you know, pick up stones and chuck chuck them and then get rid of them. This isn't a lynch mob. No, stoning in their culture, their law, it was like a judicial thing. It was, and the community had the, the right to, to make a judgment and, and, ex, and make an execution. And what, what we're hearing in the story here is that these people decided Joshua and Caleb were telling lies. They were bearing false witness. And so we're going to pass execution sentence on them. That's what's going on. And then before that can happen, we don't know whether this is instantly or a matter of days or whatever. But at some point, God's glory is seen. God comes near, it says, in a visible way. Just like he was there every day with the cloud. Uh, For some reason, I guess the cloud wasn't there at this point. Or the fire that was at the night time, which was a symbol of his presence with them. Glory is what you see when God's around. 
We can't see God, but there's this evidence of God and glory is you know, the cloud or the fire. And it says here, God's glory is seen and he speaks and he comes and he speaks to Moses and he reveals what's on his heart. You hear God's heart here, his frustration, his pain, his sense of distance from them. These people, he says, they're not my people, these people, look what they're saying about me. He said, they, these people, they treat me with contempt says the God who's delivered them from slavery. They refuse to believe. He seems to be saying, whatever, my, whatever I do, it just doesn't make any impact on them. They just don't take any notice of it. And then he comes to this conclusion that he shares with Moses. He says, as far as me and the Israelites are concerned, it's like a, a relationship. It's over. It's finished. I've had it with these people, says God to Moses. It's, it's, that's the end. And he says, I'll, I'll just, they'll, they'll be gone. They're, they're toast, you know. And, and I'll start again with you, Moses. And, and I'll make a great nation out of you. I'll use a better DNA, Paul, perhaps he's saying. I don't know. He's saying, you know, uh, a gene, Paul, rather. He's out, you know. Wow, that's a heavy thing to hear, isn't it? Moses is there hearing God saying, let's, let's do Israelites 1.1, shall we? <laughs> let's uh, start again. Is that fair? Well, who are we to judge? But it does uh, seem fair. It's understandable. All that they'd seen of God, all his goodness to them. It is a crisis, but you can see why. Even worse, it's happened before. Do you remember when Moses was up uh, in the presence of God getting the Ten Commandments? He was away for 40 days. Interesting 40-day period again. Um, And uh, he comes down and they're worshipping a golden calf that they made, an idol. And they've said, here's your God that led you out of Egypt, says um, the people of Israel. Aaron organized it. And God, you know, Moses was furious. God was furious. And, 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 and at that point, you read it in Exodus 32 to 34. Again, God says to Moses, that's it. I'm, I'm out of here. You know, these people, they're over, you know. And Moses intervenes and pleads with God that he'd be merciful to these people. It already happened once before, not that long ago. And here's Moses again. Moses is a good person to have in a crisis, isn't he? (laughs) What does he do? He prays. That's what he does. He prays. He comes to God. And we see his prayer in verses 13 to 16. What does he pray about? What does he come with? Excuses? Oh God, you know, they're, they're slaves. They've got baggage. You know, they just can't help it doesn't come like that does he does he come with mitigation have you ever been in court i used to sit in court a lot in my old job many years ago and you'd you'd ask that even if someone was kind of guilty they the magistrate would say would ask the solicitors come up with any mitigation any circumstances to to make the the magistrates be a bit easier on them i don't they still do that in court i think they probably do yeah somebody's nodding and um yeah that Moses isn't there like a mitigation lawyer. No, no, he's not saying, well, you know, if I hadn't been for this and that and that. No, he, stayed, he said, he starts from the position that they absolutely deserve God's judgment. So what does he pray about? Three things. He prays about God's reputation. Did you notice that? He prays about how God will be seen. 
by the Canaanites. He says to God, look, God, yeah, if you do that, what about what the Canaanites, the Egyptians, all these people? See, Moses knows that God's heart was that the whole world would know him through Israel. That's the point. Moses knew it. Again, that's in Exodus 19. They were to be a kingdom of priests in the whole earth. That Moses knew that the whole point of them being God's people, just indeed as the point of us of being God's people, is that the whole world might know him. And Moses kind of plugs into that and says, God, if you do that, what about your reputation? What about your glory? What will people be saying about you? In a crisis, we pray. What do we pray? We pray for God's glory to be known. We pray that his name will be honored by all people. That's the first thing. That's the whole bedrock. That's the basis of our praying. That whatever we're asking for, we're asking that God's glory, that the will of God will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That the kingdom will come. That he will be seen and known. Next week at the week of prayer. You want to know what to pray for? There will be lots of ideas. But here's a good place to start. Pray about God's glory and about God's reputation. That's what we need to pray about. That's what Moses prayed for. Secondly, Moses prays about God's word. Did you notice that? If you've got the NRV there, verse 18. It's in inverted commas there. It's a quotation. He's quoting back to God what God said to him in Exodus chapter 34 at the last crisis when God um, kind of forgave the people. Uh, God declared his name and he says, I'm the Lord, the Lord, abounding in steadfast love, forgiving, um, but unable to, will not leave the guilty unpunished and so on. Moses prays God's word back to God. We can do that too when we pray. Don't know what to pray? Use the word. You know, what, you know, find something and say, Lord, that's what you say in your word. I don't see that around me at the moment. Can I pray that? He prays about God's glory. He prays oh, based on God's word. And the third thing he prays kind of uh, around is God's love. The statement he quotes back to God is about his love. His abounding love. He reminds God of the fact that he is one who forgives. That he has forgiven the people in the past. And he pleads with God that God would forgive them. He brings all that he's known of God. All that God has revealed. He brings in prayer on behalf of the Israelites. And there's Moses standing right there. Pleading their cause before the Lord. Who is rightly about to finish with them. So to speak. Bring the relationship to an end, to put it mildly. We need someone to plead our cause like that, don't we? Are we any better in ourselves? We're no different, really, as human beings. We need God to forgive our rebellion. We need someone to ask him to do that for us. Who have we got? Jesus. Jesus stands between us. He is the mediator. He's the one who brings God's forgiveness into our lives. How else could we be forgiven? God cannot clear the guilty. He cannot leave it as if it's just not important. And when we pray... We kind of join in with Jesus as he prays for others. 
You know, the, the Lord's Prayer begins, Our Father, doesn't it? Jesus, when he said to the disciples, pray like this, Our Father. And, and that immediately tells us that it's a, a corporate prayer. But I wonder whether there's another thing. That, because it's Jesus saying, Our Father, is he inviting kind of his disciples to see, kind of to be part of his relationship? It's Our Father, says Jesus, from the words of Jesus. As we pray, we kind of bring our prayers in line with him it's certainly what he prays in john 17 um, the privilege we have of praying we pray hungry for god's glory we pray on the foundation of god's word we pray out of a profound awareness of god's love and next week we can do that don't miss the opportunity actually you don't have to leave it till next week and do that <laughs> do that this week as well so what happens then? Verse 20. The Lord replied, I have forgiven them as you asked. Moses asked for their forgiveness without God compromising his holiness. And the people are not wiped out. Not then, not all of them. It's not over for the Israelites. God is not going to bring the relationship to a close because Moses prays. Prayer can bring about fundamental changes, can't it? That's why we pray. One of the reasons. Let's read uh, verses 20 to 25 then and see what happens next. The Lord replied, I have forgiven them as you asked. Nevertheless, as surely as I live and as surely as the glory of the Lord fills the whole earth, not one of the men who saw my glory and the miraculous signs I performed in Egypt and in the desert, but who disobeyed me and tested me ten times. Not one of them will ever see the land I promised on oath to their forefathers. No one who has treated me with contempt will ever see it. But because my servant Caleb has a different spirit and follows me wholeheartedly, I will bring him into the land he went to, and his descendants will inherit it. Since the Amalekites and Canaanites are living in the valleys, turn back tomorrow and set out towards the desert along the route to the Red Sea. We'll read on in a minute. There's consequences. The first thing was the crisis. Second thing, consequences. Verse 21 contains a word that is a bit worrying, nevertheless. God says, I've forgiven them, but nevertheless. And the Lord uses the same argument about his glory that Moses has used. Just as Moses said, God, what will people think of you if you just wipe these people out now and bring it all to a close? God says to them, because my glory will fill the earth, he says, I simply cannot let these people who've rebelled against me get away with it. They cannot go scot-free. God says, I cannot overlook this sin. He said, ten times they tested me. That may be a reference to those ten different leaders who all ten of them uh, rebelled against God. Any of them could have taken a different path, but only Joshua and Caleb did. And God says, nobody who rebelled is going to see this land. Only Caleb and Joshua. So God's answer comes to Moses. It's not the end for Israel. As a community, they will go into the land. But for that generation, it is. uh, Or it will be. They will not see the land that's been promised to them. It's It's a sad thing, isn't it? And so they're told to head back in the direction of Egypt. They said, let's go back to Egypt. God says, well, you better take them off toward, back towards the Red Sea because, you know, they're so frightened of the Amalekites. We can't, you can't go that way. But 
Yeah, they wanted to go back to Egypt. You take them, take them back towards the Red Sea. And there's the, the similar idea is picked up in verse 26 to 38, because now God speaks to the whole community now, and they all hear this. So here it is in verse 26. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, How long will this wicked community grumble against me? I've heard the complaints of these grumbling Israelites. So tell them. That's what they're to hear. As surely as I live, declares the Lord, I will do to you the very things I heard you say. In this desert, your bodies will fall, every one of you, 20-year-olds or more, who was counted in the census and who has grumbled against me. Not one of you will enter the land I swore with uplifted hand to make your home, except Caleb, son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, son of Nun. As for your children that you said would be taken as plunder. They remember they said that, oh, our children, will be taken as plunder. Well, God says, I will bring them in to enjoy the land you have rejected. But you, your bodies will fall in the desert. Your children will be shepherds here for 40 years, suffering for your unfaithfulness until the last of your bodies lies in the desert. For 40 years, one year for each of the 40 days you explore the land, you will suffer for your sins and know what it is like to have me against you. I, the Lord, have spoken. I will surely do these things to this whole wicked community which is banded together against me. <clears throat> they will meet their end in the desert. Here they will die. So the men uh, Moses had sent to explore the land who returned and made the whole community grumble against him by spreading a bad report about it. These men, responsible for spreading the bad report about the land, were struck down and died of a plague before the Lord. Of the men who went to explore the land, only Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, son of Jephunneh, survived. So God speaks to the whole community, and he tells them he's taken their words seriously. Their choices to follow their fears their disregard of him. He said, I heard you said that several times. Many times you said. Okay, so in one sense, I'll answer those prayers as well. You said, we'll die in the desert. God says, that's what you said. That's what's going to happen. He takes their choices, their words seriously. The children, they said, and that's a a really interesting little touch, isn't it? They said, our children, they'll be captives. God says, I'm going to look at your children will be fine. (laughs) Your children actually will be the ones who go into this promised land. Because although they'll have to wait, I've not done with them. There is a future for this community. It's a kind of blend, isn't it, of, of mercy and grace, but also God doesn't compromise his holiness here. This is the Lord that we follow. Sin matters. There are consequences. And hey, we kind of know that, don't we? It's going to be 40 years before they get... Now, now, as I say, rebellion has consequences. Choosing not to believe what God promises. Grumbling against him. Grumbling this idea that, oh, God isn't good. He doesn't want the best. You know, this sense of banding together against him. That behavior has an effect. The ten spies who went, they died straight away. The others are going to wait it out. That whole generation is going to be, in a sense, babysitting. Treading water. uh, Getting the next generation ready to go into the place they cannot go. 
And I won't read it because of time, but you can read on. There's a strange little incident from verses 39 to 45 where it almost seems as if the people realize God's forgive them, say, oh, is it really that bad? You know, they say, oh, we're really sorry that, you know, oh, we were wrong and so on. And, and they say, well, let's, let's go anyway. You know, uh, we've said sorry. It's going to be all right. We'll go into the land. Yeah, we'll obey God now. Um, and they have a go and they get completely, you know, beaten up by the locals. Who, because Moses says, you can't do that. No, it's, you know, you... God's not with you. They, they're still disregarding God. Now they're disregarding him as they say, oh yeah, let's go on in. And God said, no, I'm not with you. You can't do it now. You had the chance. You missed it. It's a sad little incident, really. But look at Numbers 15. I just want to see where the story goes on. I don't want to leave it at this point. It's a sad and it's a serious incident. I'll forgive them, God says. And corporately, that's true. The community isn't finished. The older ones will die in the desert. But the young ones, the next generation, will go in. Because sin has consequences. It cannot be overlooked by a holy God. But look at Numbers 15, uh, chapter verse 1. The next thing it appears that the Lord says... The Lord said to Moses, speak to the Israelites and say to them, after you enter the land, I'm giving you as a home and you present to the Lord offerings made by fire from the herd or the flock or an aroma and so on. He goes on to two things. First of all, the community, he says to the community, as a whole community, there's a future. You will get this land and I want you to get ready for going there. And you know what, says God, when you go there, I'm going to provide a way that you can come to me. A way whereby my holiness is not compromised, where I can forgive. And it's through an offering, through a sacrifice. The others can get ready. They can get their kids in the right place to go. And God provides this sacrifice. A way for our rebellion to be dealt with. A way for the Israelites to come to him. Now, what about us? We're rebels. We need forgiveness. But justice needs to be done. The guilty cannot just be kind of cleared as if nothing matters. What's the answer? God makes a way. What's Jesus described as? The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And right after this incident, with its awful consequences, God plants this idea again into their their thinking of the idea of sacrifice. There is a way for forgiveness to happen without God's holiness being compromised. Our rebellion can be forgiven because of Jesus. Jesus is our advocate. Jesus is our sacrifice. And we'll celebrate that in just a moment. So we've seen the crisis. We've seen the consequences. I want, thirdly, I'm going to have to rush a bit, to think about the conclusion now, I don't mean the conclusion as in how it ends, but do you remember, did you do, like me, do junior school or middle school science? Remember middle school science where you had to do an experiment and you had to write it up in three ways and one of the things was the conclusion. Everyone remembering that? Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. comes back. And the conclusion, do you, do you still do that? Yeah, see some gradu- graduates or people. Uh, the conclusion means what you learn from it, what, what this means, what, what are the implications So what are the implications? What can we learn? What can we take away from watching what happened there? 
Now, the Bible helps us in this because this is such a key moment in Israel's history that uh, at least three other times in the Old Testament it's referred to, and in the New Testament as well. Psalm 95 uh, is an important one. I want to go to the New Testament, if you would just uh, come with me, to Hebrews chapter 3, where Psalm 95 is quoted. So it's the quote, we've got got two for one. We've got the Old Testament quoted and commented on in the New Testament. You'll find that on page 1202 of the Church Bible in the New Testament. And it starts off in verse 5 and 6, talking about how Moses was faithful as a servant in God's house, but Christ is faithful as a son over God's house. So it starts off with this comparison between Jesus and Moses, how, how, how Jesus is, as it were, much better than Moses, and he's like our Moses. He's the one who stands kind of as the one between us and God. But then it goes on. Look at verse uh, 7. Uh, sorry, ver- verse 6. We are his house if we hold on to our courage and the hope of which we boast. So as the Holy Spirit says, says the writer to Hebrews, and he quotes Psalm 95. Today, if you hear his vi- voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the desert. When your fathers tested and tried me and for 40 years saw what I did, this is why I was angry with that generation. I said... Their hearts are always going astray, and they have not known my way. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. See to it, brothers, now says the writer to Hebrews. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ if we hold firmly till the end the confidence we had at first. And he goes on to say a lot more about this incident we've been looking at. Now what's the key issue here? The key issue is our hearts, isn't it? He says that very clearly in verse 12. You see, um, verse uh, 8, verse 7, verse 8. Psalm 95 says, Today, if you hear his heart, do, his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the desert. Their hearts were hardened. They refused to believe. They held the Lord in contempt. The problem was their heart, wasn't it? And, and the writer says, We're not to harden our hearts as believers because sin can deceive us. Rebellion can grow even in our hearts. We can refuse to believe what God says. We can be in danger of turning away, it says, from the living God. There's that phrase there. What's your heart? Your heart is, in Bible terms, the very kind of depth of your being, the very person that you are. What's there in your heart is between only really you and the Lord know about it. Only I and God know really where my heart is before God. I can fool you. It's look very easy for me, a pastor, to fool you. Not completely, I mean, you know, but it's, it's easier for, sometimes for pastors than others. But only God really knows what my heart is. Those closer to me may have a glimpse of it, but I can fool them as well. We can fool each other. Our hearts are the key thing. And it's easy to ignore your heart. 
just go on automatic pilot, you know, do all the right stuff. But your heart, your relationship with the Lord, your, your walk with him can be all over the place. We need to guard our hearts. That's how Caleb and Joshua avoided the trouble. Do you remember what God says about Caleb? He says only Caleb uh, is going to go in, although Joshua did as well. So we can put the two of them together. Caleb has a different spirit, says God in Numbers 14, and follows me wholeheartedly. His whole heart, says God, is for me. So how do we avoid these dangers? Hebrews gives us some, uh, some tips, well, more than tips, some, some truth to guide us. Here they come, very quickly. Verse 13, encourage one another. The power of being together helps us in our hearts. It's interesting, isn't it, that it's Joshua and Caleb. I wonder whether if it had only been Joshua or only been Caleb, whether they would have caved in like the others. But the two of them stood firm. We need each other, dear brothers and sisters, as we kind of walk with God. For our hearts to be secure in God, we need one another in that. Encourage one another. Then it says daily. Encourage one another daily. It's, you know, it's it basically saying it's something we need to be constantly on top of. Today matters. What I do today, what I say today, what I think today matters. So we kind of could be aware that we can't take time out of uh, giving our hearts to the Lord. Today it says if you hear his voice, we need to hear him, follow him, live with him to keep our hearts in the right place. And verse 14 Another simple little tip. It says, hold firmly to the end of the confidence. Sorry, to hold firmly to the end of the confidence we had at first. Here's the tip. Keep living like a new Christian. Do you know what I mean by that? See, great when someone becomes a Christian, you know, it's all kind of, they're just so aware of the Lord and, you know, they're keen to pray and they're sensitive to him and, you know, all kinds of things. And, you know, now I know that there's a first flush like, like falling in love, I suppose, and, but just as in, in, if, if you're in a relationship or if you're, you're married or whatever, or your spouse, you, you, you need to keep that sense of being in love. So, yeah, with the Lord, we need to keep, keep living like a new Christian, if that makes any sense to you. I've got to stop. How are we going to respond? Well, we are, as human beings, in a crisis. Without God's rescue, we are rebels. But we can find forgiveness through Jesus. He's the one who is both our mediator and our sacrifice. And that's where we start with Christ. If you've not started there yet, we come to him and we turn away from our independence, our rebellion, our living for ourselves. And we welcome him and his rule into our lives. We deserve judgment, but we ask for forgiveness. Do you know that? question number one but for those of us who do know that and love him we can pray we can pray in crises and i we can pray when we're not in crises as well praying on god's word for god's glory aware of god's love are we going to do that in our praying and then finally as we listen to the warnings of god's word let's realize our heart attitude really matters our choices our words to ourselves i'm the worst person for speaking sometimes bad and stupid words to myself or you know i think sometimes culturally uh english people culturally we love to kind of put ourselves down you know 
don't we? We love to be a little bit kind of negative. And sometimes I think you can say that even if it's in humor so often that it kind of creeps into your heart and you start believing it. So we need to be careful what we kind of let into our hearts. We need to daily encourage one another so that we don't turn away from the living God and we don't miss out on all he promises for us. Let's celebrate the mediator and the sacrifice for Lord Jesus as we continue in worship. Thanks.